welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. Each week, you get valuable training through this podcast to help you make that move. And as valuable as listeners tell me this podcast is for them, you'll need more to become a product master. And you'll find out what more you need at the same place where the show notes for this episode are. And that's at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 133. I'm a student of approaches for innovation, how ideas are conceived and turned into valuable products and services. However, my guest introduced me to a new line of thinking, an approach to innovation I had not previously been exposed to, and for that I'm thankful. I now have another tool in my innovation toolbox, and you will too after hearing Scott Bowden share how innovations throughout history can provide modern ideas and help solve problems we face today. After spending several years at IBM, now Scott is traveling the globe to investigate and share how historic innovations provide lessons for the modern-day innovation practitioners That's you and me. Scott shares several examples of historic innovations, and I hope you find them as interesting as I did. Scott, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. Thanks, Chad. It's great to be here. I am unfortunately not a student of history. It's one of those things that maybe I will fill in later in my life, and I wish I was. I see my kids learning more history than I ever did. My experiences with history were out of really boring, stale textbooks in school that never inspired me much. And it's been fun to kind of revisit history a little bit. I'm looking forward to talking about how history inspires innovation. So I want to start with just kind of framing this, what is the value in his, in using history as part of our work in innovation? Um, what what I've found over the years of working in the innovation field is that uh, history can be a great tool to use to help an innovator come up with new approaches to uh, solving the types of problems that we face in our our day to day work, and it, to help you understand where historical innovation fits into the the framework of of innovation overall. Um, I've I've put together a model that uh, talks about three different ways uh, where an innovator can apply innovation to solving problems. So the the three different ways are, one, uh, applying an existing technology to solve a problem. And, And this is the one that I think we see most frequently. Um, you could call it you know, mimicry or incremental uh, improvements, but basically, if you are if you are managing a product or um, you know running a process, and you see where another company or another organization has applied innovation to improve their product, you, you can apply that technology or that solution to your product and, and get better performance. So you're you're innovating at you know at the margins in in an incremental manner. The second type is out, out of the blue innovation or an aha moment, and and this would be when um, you're th- trying to solve a problem and you come up with a completely new and innovative way to address it. You're not you're not taking what someone else has put together. You're actually uh, you, you've actually come up with a brand new approach. Um, you may launch a brand new product category altogether. You may invent something 
a lot of times this is where you'll see a, a patent uh, delivered for a particular innovation. So that's the second one. Um, the third is uh, an area where I've focused most of my time on, and it's where historical innovation comes into play. And this is what I would call the analogical uh, innovation approach. And the you know, root of that is the word analogy. And, and as you may recall from algebra or even from, uh, uh, from English literature, an analogy is where you have uh, A is to B as C is to D. So you've got linkages between different concepts. Uh, and how A is connected to B, so too can C be connected to D, but they're not necessarily um, this in any of those entities are not necessarily the same. Um, and the best way to think about this is it's an example from a another field of study that when you apply that, you yield new insights that you can use to solve a problem in your uh, field of study. And that's really the essence of historical innovation is looking at how people have solved problems in the past, taking that thought process and applying it to a uh, challenge that you're facing as an innovator in the in the current era. So really finding those analogies and getting inspiration from those examples to kind of fuel your problem solving as an innovator. Exactly. And, and I'll, um, I'll start with the simplest one and then we'll go into some that are a little bit more complex. But, uh, there, there's a, uh, a walk, uh, a, a stroll that occurred on the, um, on a, on a weekend in Glasgow, Scotland hmm. that James Watt took in the year 1765. And it was where he was, he was struggling as an engineer with coming up with a better way for the steam engine to operate with greater efficiency to pump water out of coal mines in England. And uh, he, during this stroll, he came up with a new uh, condenser model that he eventually patented and, and it uh, launched the entire industrial revolution. So, you know, the analogy there is when you're struggling with a, uh, a challenge instead of you know, sitting at your desk and continuing to, uh, to struggle with it or beat your head against the wall, um, step outside and go for a walk and uh, get, the, you know, get the different parts of your brain operating to try to put the puzzle pieces together to come up with a better approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's, um, that's a very simple historical innovation example. Another example that, uh, I'll go into in a little bit more detail is, um, the site of Masada, Israel. Uh, so if you've, if you've visited Masada, it's, it's in the desert, uh, you know, south of, uh, Jerusalem, uh, near the, uh, the Dead Sea. And, and it's a desert. It's a very dry place. And Masada is a, a, uh, essentially a a fortress and palace that was built on top of a rock outcropping that's about 1300 feet high. And it was built by Herod the Great uh, around 37 BC. And what's interesting about the site is, um, and a historical innovation example that, uh, that we can go through is how they handled water collection. You're in the desert. Uh, the sea next to you is the Dead Sea. That's uh, salty water that you can't use to uh, support your, um, your your civilization. That's uh, your folks who are living on the plateau. 
Um, but you do get periodically these heavy downpours during the uh, during the rainy season in the desert. So the uh, the engineers at the time built a system of canals that captured water from all the mountains surrounding the site, and it flowed the water up to a level near the citadel that it couldn't quite get up to the top because you've got to use gravity for the water to flow. But they built a series of cisterns that would collect the water uh, and then they would use uh, workers to transport the water from these cisterns up to the upper levels of the palace. So um, it's a long, uh, long story there, but let, let's think about this in the context of, let's say you're designing a system today, uh, a, uh, a transaction system that has sudden bursts of activity, uh, that you can't really predict when they're going to happen, that you need to process, but you don't necessarily, um, want to build an infrastructure that's able to handle those all the time. Uh, you could uh, you potentially use on-demand cloud computing to be able to ramp up to handle the loads similar to how the canals would channel the water to the site. Or maybe the innovation is, could you add a manual step to the process, just like the servants would take the water from the cisterns up to the top of the site? Um, would it make sense from a cost-saving standpoint to have a small manual step instead of having to build out all your infrastructure uh, to be able to handle those transactions, which are only coming in bursts. Sure. Or begin with that manual step or steps to test out the idea and gain some momentum before having to invest in larger architecture. A absolutely. That's a, that's a great point. And, and, uh, you know, incremental changes to that will, uh, that will position you better for the, you know, f for what you're trying to do long term make would make perfect sense in that, in that example. A second one I'd like to take you through is um, uh, what's called a medina, which um, in uh, you know, some of the most famous medinas in the world are in Morocco. And medina is Arabic for you know the old town or the old city. And if you've seen pictures of a medina, it's basically a, a, a number of you know tight alleyways, a mm. um, couple story buildings. And, uh, random, uh, winding roads, no big boulevards or anything. And it's basically a maze. And, and one of the most famous, uh, is in, uh, in Fez, Morocco. And it, the Fez Medina is absolutely impossible to navigate through unless you've been there many times. And ev even with a phone map, uh, it's a struggle <laughs> to find your way around. And I was going to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, I was thinking one of the most famous Medinas, must be in the Indiana Jones movie, Indiana Jones, when they're running through this very tight alleys in this old, old, old town. And I don't exactly. remember which one that is, but I remember the scene. Right. And, uh, or in a James Bond movie when you're, uh, when he's escaping from someone and then he, you know, he goes through a, uh, a, uh, a poster that, uh, new, that he busts through and then a new poster rolls down right behind him and he disappears right. from the bad guys. Um, so in the in the case of the Medina, you know, it's it's not designed that way just to confound modern tourists. Um, it, the the strategy behind it was that even though you had outer walls to protect the city, 
um, you had to think about what happens once the uh, invaders get inside. And if you have big, wide open boulevards, then once the outer shell is breached, uh, the invaders just move through and do whatever they want and they control your city. If it's a um, if it's a maze and a you know a, a, a chaotic Medina like you have in Fez or other places, um, you as a defender still have the advantage even when the outer walls have been penetrated. So the thought there is when we're designing say a firewall for a system, um, you know we'll do things like a you know dual factor authentication and some, some other mechanisms to improve our security, but. Why wouldn't we consider making the design of the system continually continue to be complex once you get inside? In other words, don't just allow a breach of the outer wall to give all the jewels of the kingdom to an invader. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's that's a case where you take an example from the past, apply it to something you're trying to do in the modern world and uh, potentially derive a new insight for uh, for firewall design. I like the maze picture of at times we're adding complexity to structure as actually part of a beneficial design that creates value. Uh, absolutely. And you, because typically you would build a, a date, let's say you have a database that has all of your valuable information in it, you know, whether it's, you know, personally sensitive information or, or something else, you know, bank account information. You try to put it in one place so that you can do good, you can do fast transactions uh, when you're hitting your database and queries and improve the performance of your system. Mm-hmm. But you're actually creating a security gap that way. So you know, it's something to think about to try to balance as you're as you're putting together your system design. And another building design is the Pentagon, which you know, you if you've walked in the Pentagon. Its hallways are all identical, and the, the the structure is all reflective of every other element of structure. And so it's a place where if you don't know where you're going, you aren't going to easily find find where you're supposed to be going. Absolutely, yeah. I've I've been uh, I've been lost there, even though I had someone who was taking me through, show, showing me where to go. We still uh, were quite confused as mm-hmm. we went through the Pentagon, and uh, you know the. Uh, the guy who led the project to build the Pentagon, Leslie Groves, ended up being the uh, head of the military head of the um, Manhattan Project, mm. which is another one of the examples uh, that I like to use for historical innovation. Uh, uh, another another one to talk about briefly is the um, the Inca civilization. So you know. Most folks know about uh, the Incas as a, uh, a, a an empire that existed in the uh, the fifteen you know fourteen to fifteen hundreds in South America that basically were wiped out by the uh, the Spanish uh, when they uh, arrived and and took over that area. And Machu Picchu is the most famous Inca site, and you, I'm sure you've all seen pictures of it. It's an incredible rock uh, citadel. On a um, high up on a mountain, uh, surrounded by a river, and you know, hun- you know, several hundred foot sheer rock face drop offs on on uh, three sides, hmm. and um, you you know, the original thinking around Machu Picchu was that it was a, a palace built for uh, an Inca emperor, Pachacutec. But um, some recent research has suggested that it is a um, it, it could have been used more as a university or a research site. 
And this is based on some seeds that were found in the agricultural terraces at the site, you know, showing the different types of things that the Incas were trying to grow. And the, and the theory uh, is that, um, you know, the Incas, their, their, uh, their capital was in Cusco, which is at uh, almost 12,000 feet above sea level. And they were a, a mountain, a mountainous uh, culture. They were familiar with living in the high Andes. They knew what grew well there. Um, they were comfortable there, but um, as they were expanding their empire towards the Amazon, which you start to get into the Amazon, more of a jungle type environment as you as you head inland uh, from the Andes, um, the Incas were were uncomfortable with what they were going to find. They didn't quite know how to operate in that area. They didn't know you know they were a little uh, scared of the the people they might encounter. So. Machu Picchu represents a toehold that they created uh, in between their civilization and the uh, the Amazon jungle. So they uh, so they built Machu Picchu uh, in the model of their other sites, um, but on the edge of the jungle, uh, rather than so so the so rather than you know going down to a, a lower elevation in the middle of the jungle, hacking out a bunch of trees and branches and things and, you know, building a camp, they built something that was like what they were comfortable with back in Cusco. And they built that in Machu Picchu. So they, they got a, they put in, put their toe in the water, got a toehold in the area and used that as a stepping point to potential future, um, future uh, expansion into the, into the jungle, which of course the, once the Spanish came their their empire ended. And uh, Chad, that reminds me of your, your, your foray into, um, into uh, an art being in an RV for your innovation research. If you, if you don't mind uh, talking about that for a moment. Yeah, we kind of worked up to this. And so some listeners will know that the podcast was the outgrowth of, a year on the road I did with my family in an RV, 280-square-foot RV traveling around the U.S. And I was interviewing people involved in innovation and product management and really enjoyed those discussions I was having and got home and kind of missed them. But even what led up to the RV were some other steps that were, you know, a year out in an RV was kind of a big idea we didn't start there. We, we started with, you know, taking one summer a weekend, a few weekend trips. And then the next summer taking a few week trips. And then the next summer we took a 30 day trip. And the next summer we were out for the whole entire summer. And then, you know, it seems like a natural progression would be, let's try to go out for a year. So we did. And that makes perfect sense. So the, the, uh, you were lever, you didn't know it at the time, but you were leveraging the Machu Picchu example of, you know, uh, starting out in something where you're familiar, you know, expanding into what you're familiar with before you take the full jump into the into the unknown. And uh, for someone working on, you know, changes to a product or you're know, trying to develop a new process or technology, you know, start with what you're familiar with, make incremental improvements as you move forward along that path. Um, another interesting example from the Incas is, uh, was in a, a site called Moray, which is a little closer to Cusco, but it's a, it was an agricultural research center where if you're, if you're familiar with the stone terraces that you always see at an Inca site, uh, that, uh, basically, uh, were, are, are, you know, giant flat 
areas surrounded by stone that are set up for uh, um, agricultural planting and farming. Um, when I visited the site, there were these, um, the walls are about eight feet tall, you know, maybe mm. seven feet tall, and there are stone steps sticking out. But to get from the bottom of one terrace to the next going up the wall, there were only three or four steps and the steps were maybe three feet apart. Hmm. Um, and, and I'm tall, I'm over six feet tall, but I had trouble walking up those steps, you know, using it like a ladder. So, and we don't think the Incas were very tall either. No, the Incas were, were a shorter civilization. Um, definitely not, uh, like the Europeans, uh, you know, who were taller and the, uh, especially the Northern Europeans. Um, so the, the answer that came from the, the, you know, the local host and the re- person who had researched, uh, the Inca civilization is that they, when they went up the steps, they ran. And so they spaced the steps in a way that it makes it easy if you're moving fast, hmm. but almost impossible if you're moving slow. And it's, um, you know, wasn't necessarily for defensive purposes or anything. This is just an open agricultural area. But the thought there that could be applied to innovation is, let's say you're working on changing a process uh, and you're trying to apply innovation to that process. A lot of times you'll say, well, you, what if we slow this down or, or you pay a little more attention to this step? What if you change the mindset and you say, if I go faster through this step, um, does it make the step work even better? And so something as simple as moving fast in order to be more accurate, uh, in, in the case of the uh, Moray Terra steps, that's exactly what the Incas did with their design. That's interesting. My, my home is near the Air Force Academy, and one of the student researchers this year created this non-Newtonian material, and, and my kids have made this before, uh, non-Newtonian material you make at home with cornstarch and water. And it's just a material where if you hit it hard, it, it, it feels solid, right? It resists you punching it. But if you put your hand into it slowly, it's just an ooey-gooey mess of, of stuff. Oh, interesting. But this researcher at the academy used this non-Newtonian material along with some Kevlar fibers to create a better bulletproof type material, something that you could wear as body armor, you know, as, as a vest. And it seems to be working so well that the harder the, the force, the bigger the bullet that hits the material, the better of a job it does at stopping it. So really interesting, the, the, this notion of, you know, speed and, and force. Oh, that's incredible. That's, that's a per- perfect analogy for the, uh, for the terrorist steps. Um, let's stay in the same, uh, same uh, century, you know, 1400s to 1500s, and let's jump over to uh, to Italy to Leonardo da Vinci, and I've uh, got a couple of examples uh, from from his work as an artist uh, that are that are worth investigating from a historical innovation standpoint. Uh, the first would be his use of a sketchbook. Now, uh, you know, anyone who's seen a um, an art student knows that the art student is always carries a sketchbook and is always out running around sketching things and capturing different images. Um, when you think of someone as you know brilliant as Leonardo da Vinci, you you might think, well, he didn't need a sketchbook; he was you know naturally gifted uh, and was just a brilliant artist. But you know, the the answer is no. He actually did have a sketchbook, and he you know in it you will see. Um, for example, uh, you know, 10 different uh, studies of the same nose and different hands and faces and things that he observed as he walked around uh, around town 
uh, and these uh, sketches ended up becoming key elements of his of his paintings and, and uh, you know various works of art that he created. So the the example there, and, and it's it's you know, a good example for an innovator is um, you've got to have something with you at all times to capture what you encounter in daily life. And and I know I've I've um, had a point in my career where uh, I hubristically thought that uh, now I'll remember that I don't need to write that down. And, uh, in, you know, what I found over time is that you've got to capture those fleeting moments of inspiration and keep track of them because you never know when you'll be able to link mm. them up to solving a problem that you, you weren't even thinking about at the time. And I'm just curious, Scott, what have you found that works well for you for that? You've been doing a lot of travel lately, visiting some of these historic sites. And I also recently just heard an interview from uh, David Kelly from IDEO, who was also kind of the establisher of design thinking and really helped push things there with the design school at Stanford, saying that this is one of the most important tools for innovators. You always have – he likes a physical notebook because you never know where the ideas are going to be and jot them down before, as you said, they're before they're lost and you forget. What works for you personally in keeping track of ideas? I'm, I'm with him. I'm, I'm a physical notebook guy. I, I think there's some value – uh, there's some connection that occurs in your brain when you write that's different than when you speak or even if you type a note mm-hmm. into your phone. And uh, the only time that doesn't work is if I'm if I'm doing something where I just can't take a notebook with me, but I have a phone and and I'll capture it on my phone. But um, but I, I think the physical notebook is still the best tool to um, to at least do that initial idea capture, especially if you want to sketch a, a, you know, a, a diagram or something mm-hmm. based on the, the insight you just came up with. Good. I think we need to come up with an official innovator's, you know, moleskin little notebook to, <laughs> to carry around. So. We could put your logo on. It. You've got a, a nice logo. We could we could put the Everyday Innovator logo right on top. Put your ideas and, there. Um, perfect. <laughs> there, that's that would be perfect. Um, another example from uh, Leonardo da Vinci is um, that you know, it seems innocuous, but uh, it's it's red chalk. Mm. And so in in his sketchbook and you know in other uh, you know work that he did, um, you know, other artists at the time. We're using just plain black charcoal and, uh, they were, you know, it's, it's was cheap and easy to find and, and that's what everyone else did. But, uh, Leonardo liked to use red chalk and it was a little more difficult to find, but it allowed him to capture, uh, you know, human skin, flesh tones, fires, you know, sunlight. All sorts of things that just don't render well in black and white. So just by making that tiny little tweak to how he was, um, you know, drawing, um, allowed him to you know, develop, you know, much, uh, you know, much better, uh, uh, drawings and, and artwork than, uh, than anyone he was, uh, any of his contemporaries at the time. So the analogy there is, you know, is there, if you're, if you're trying to solve a problem or come up with a new technology is there just one small little variable you can flip and change that one variable and get completely different results mm-hmm. uh, you know so, some, something just to think about uh, when you're struggling to come up with a, an innovation mm-hmm. 
All right, let's uh, let's jump ahead to uh, 1943 and uh, the Manhattan Project, which was the uh, the, the U.S. Uh, government's uh, secret project to develop an atomic bomb. And um, the the site there, it's that was the that you know the main site for the uh, the research for that project was Los Alamos, New Mexico, which is a, a fascinating place to visit. Not too far down the road from where you are. I visited a few times, and it is a oh, very good. geographically, it's very interesting. Culturally, it's very interesting. And, and as a quick side tangent, um, I, I'm a fan of science fiction shows. One that I was watching at the time when I uh, visited Los Alamos once was what's it called Eureka? Uh, Eureka, and it's this little town of all these p- super smart PhD scientists that are designing new things for the government. And, oh, cool! And you go to Los Alamos, and in my thinking, I'm like, this is really interesting that there's all these super smart PhD scientists walking around, and it's it's just a different sort of culture. Absolutely, I mean, it was a fascinating place that I'd I'd read about all my life, and uh, until uh, uh, you know, until April uh, of this year, I'd I'd never been there, and I'm I wish I hadn't waited so long, but. Uh, it's the the whole project um, has a lot of a lot of interesting little uh, little insights for innovators. Um, the first was uh, that I came across was information sharing, which um, you know if you think about the Manhattan Project, you know you're you're at war, um, you're developing the most advanced weapon ever created, you're in a race with other countries to see who can develop it mm-hmm. first. And you've, um, your number one, uh, goal is to keep that information secret, to not let any insights that you come up with out of, you know, out of your facility mm-hmm. because you don't want to give an advantage to your competition because it's, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, that thousands and thousands of lives would be at stake, um, if that project did not go well. So, um, in the, in the case of the Manhattan project, um, the original, uh, setup of the teams that, uh, you know, Le- Leslie Groves, the Army General, and, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, uh, the, uh, Berkeley, uh, physicist, the, the original teams are set up in, you know, stovepipes. And we're all familiar with stovepipes in our organizations where you have, um, you know, people working on their area of expertise and they don't know what other folks are doing. And, um, what the Los Alamos, uh, you know, scientists figured out pretty quickly is that you you can't you can't uh, make progress in uh, in developing this uh, new technology by can you know by having these stovepipes. You've got to be able to share information, even in this top secret environment. People need to understand what other folks are working on, so they can share ideas and. And the, uh, the net result of this was a series of, you know, of, uh, colloquio where the scientists would get together and they'd go over the technology for the whole project and see what others were working on. And, and so the, the analogy here is that, uh, you know, a lot of times on an innovation project, you're, you don't want to let information get out. You don't want something to get to a customer or even another team potentially at your company. But, mm-hmm. you know, if, if folks can share information at Los Alamos, and get better results by having everyone see what the larger vision is, then uh, I think we as innovators can do that with our teams. Yeah, it's a good point. And as a, a cider, I, I don't know if you watched the uh, television series, which I found on Hulu, called Manhattan, 
I don't know how historically accurate it is, but there is a part of the storyline that has this nature of teams are clearly in stovepipes and uh, to keep information sharing at a minimum because they wanted to isolate the information, right? Uh, compartmentalize the information. Right. And you, and you want to, you know, let's say that one, one uh, person, you know, is compromised or leaked. At least you're not leaking the whole thing. Right. You know, you're, you're protecting your information that way. But, um, but yeah, over time it, it, they realized they weren't, they weren't going to, get their project done quickly enough without sharing. And, and they actually wrote up a document that, uh, that were notes from these colloquial lectures that became the Los Alamos primer. And it was, ba- it was, uh, you know, a top secret classified document that explained what the project was all about and is essentially an overview of the project. And, you know, what I, um, as I thought about my career over time, I, when I would, join a new team or start a new project, first thing I would ask is, you know, where's my, where are the foundation documents? You know, I don't want the contract necessarily yet. I want to know what's the overview of the technology that we're delivering or the solution we're working on. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times that didn't exist and I had to create it. So uh, little did I know that I was uh, doing what uh, the Los Alamos team did mm-hmm. and they built this primer. And so when a new person showed up, they would hand them this document and uh, they could get a real quick overview of what the project was about, including some pretty you know, sophisticated technical details about it. Uh, and, and that helped the, the team get to the finish line uh, ahead of the other countries that were uh, racing against us at the time. Yeah, a good practice. We've gone through a lot of really good examples of from history, and I'm sure there's others we could talk to uh, also. I'm curious, are you putting together anything for innovators to start thinking about this? I don't know if you're working on a book or putting together some materials. Uh, I'd, I'd like to get this into a book. Um, I, you know, I've, I'm, what I'm uh, working through right now are different ideas about how to organize the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, whether it's, um, you know, wh- whether it's chronological or whether there's, you know, a set of common themes, what, what I'd like to do, because I, I want, I'm trying to come at this from the standpoint of I'm looking back, you know, five or 10 years ago when, when I was in these, you know, this daily innovation role where it was such a struggle to come up with new ideas. What would be the way that I could help that person sitting there? trying to come up with new ideas. And uh, I think it'll require a little bit more complex of a framework than I have put together thus far. But the idea would be, I'm trying to solve this type of problem, you know, have a few characteristics of the problem. Here's a list of the seven or eight different things that um, that you want to consider with historical examples. So I'd, I'd love to be able to put that together in a book um, I, I am, uh, you know, trying to also capture, I've got, uh, I mentioned the notebook. I've got pages and pages full of observations from, you know, recent trips I've made that haven't made it into my writing yet. So I'm still in the collecting phase as well. Excellent. Which sounds like a fun phase to be in. So we, we can expect something coming out in the future. As for everyday innovators that are listening that would like to just kind of keep keep up with you and maybe get an announcement for when this is uh, when you have more information put together, what's a good way to just stay connected with you? Is it to you know make a connection on LinkedIn with you, or how, how would you want people to reach out to you? The best way to get in touch with me is through LinkedIn, and I'm uh, Scott Bowden, and uh, you, you'll see me as the uh, the CEO of Bridgeton West LLC. 
which is uh, the consultancy I've put together uh, in my work in the historical innovation space. Excellent. And I want to make sure that's in the show notes. And as listeners know, I love innovation quotes, and I uh, typically ask my guests to share one. I think you may have had a hard time because we talked about this earlier, limiting it to one, which is just fine. Um, what did you bring for innovation quotes? And uh, tell us why they're important to, to you. Uh, I put together two quotes, and uh, one is from uh, from my past, and I, I wanted to you know, pay homage. I, I spent almost twenty years at IBM, and I wanted to pay homage to uh, you know Tom Thomas Watson, uh, the founder of IBM, and and I think folks have seen other quotes along this you know in this uh, genre, but basically he said in 1943 that I think there is a world market for maybe five computers, which mm. of course well, you know at the time computers filled uh, you know, entire rooms, but you know nonetheless it's a reminder that even a person as as brilliant as uh, as uh, Watson you know, still wasn't able to foresee where technology was going. So I use that as an example for innovators. Don't get too down if you haven't developed a patentable innovation in the last 24 hours. Hmm. You know, that's, it, it's, it's tough to see where technology is going. And, and then the last one, I'd like to also pay homage to historical innovation. And this, this comes from a, uh, a book I read by a um a woman in Aleppo, Syria who uh you know finished her uh PhD dissertation in the middle of a war and essentially wrote a book about it and and her quote is from an old Syrian uh saying that is one who has no old has no new and her context was you know the destruction of Aleppo and you know you've seen this with Palmyra with the Roman site being destroyed and in Syria as well. Um, without the old, it's hard for us to see what the new will be. And that's my vision for historical innovation is the old gives us insight into the new. And as you're talking through a lot of those historical examples, you know, certainly we care about having some of the, the catalysts, the information, those insights to lead to solving problems and lead to new innovations, adding new value for customers, new value for organizations. But as you were going through, I, I think this would just help with creativity in general, you know, help, helping us make our brains a little, little bit more flexible about thinking about how one example in one, one domain, one space could be used to apply to a whole different domain and, and come up with something new and maybe make us a little bit more creative just by thinking through some of the historical examples. Absolutely. And the, the way I'd, I'd summarize is the, you know, the biggest challenge as an innovator is when you're staring at that blank whiteboard and you're trying to come up with a new idea, a new approach, new, you know, a process change, a new technology, and you need somewhere to start. And my, my hope in the long run is that through historical innovation, innovation will be able to put together uh, some different ideas that people can leverage to get those creative juices flowing and come up with uh, some new approaches and and let the old uh, guide us towards the new. Great. Scott, thank you so much. Again, I will put the link to your LinkedIn profile in the show notes to make it easy for people to connect to you. And I appreciate you taking time to share some historical perspective on innovation with us. Thanks so much, Chad. I enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for listening. Please tell other product managers and innovators about this podcast. If you find it valuable, they will too. And I make that easy. Just go to the show notes for the summary of the discussion with Scott, and you'll find links at the top of the page to share it on your favorite social media sites. 
Also, from the same page, you can download the Product Mastery Roadmap. It shows you how to go from Product Manager to Product Master. And I hope you start making your move now towards Product Mastery. That and more is at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 133. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.